And with that, please make sure you have your Bibles in hand. Uh, We are going to continue today our message series looking at the life of the Apostle Paul. This is part four. I'm calling it World Changer Boot Camp. And as we make our way through this message, you'll understand why I chose that title today. One of the most challenging and eye-opening Christian books of the past 50 years has been Celebration of Discipline, written in the late 70s by Richard Foster. It was a deep book. I got a hold of a copy of that early in my ministry years here at Impact. It really blessed my life. I believe it'd be a blessing to you as well. But I want to share with you a a quote from Richard Foster from page one of this book, Celebration of Discipline. Richard Foster writes, Superficiality is the curse of our age. The doctrine of instant satisfaction is a primary spiritual problem. The desperate need today is not for a greater number of intelligent people or gifted people, but for deep people. That is pretty deep, isn't it? It's a great statement. We don't want to be shallow, do we? How many of you wake up in the morning and say, my greatest goal and desire today is to be a shallow Christian? In fact, I'm going to take it a step further. I want to be the most shallow Christian in the world today. We don't wake up and say that, do we? No, we don't want to be shallow. But truth be told, most of us don't want to be deep either. Because being spiritually deep takes too much work. Let's be honest with ourselves. We're spiritually lazy. Being a shallow Christian is so much easier than being a deep Christian. Becoming a deep Christian takes way too much work. Listen to how Pastor Chuck Swindoll explains this. He says, a life marked by depth can only be cultivated in periods of time spent in solitude, quietness and obscurity. Concepts foreign to those who live their lives at the speed of light. A major obstacle that prevents us from going deeper in our relationship with Christ is our lifestyle. We're simply too busy. We need brief periods of time when we deliberately slow down and meet alone with our God. Stop and think for a moment. When was the last time you carved out time to be absolutely alone with God? It's a question I'd like you to ask. When is the last time you carved out time to be absolutely alone with God? Over the past few weeks, we've opened God's word together and we've seen here in Acts chapter nine how Saul's life was radically transformed, turned upside down by Jesus Christ as Jesus appeared to him in blinding light on the road to Damascus. Saul was a madman. He was borderline out of control, going from house to house and from synagogue to synagogue, arresting Christian men and women. Some he would throw in prison. Others he would beat. Others he would petition to have executed. He was a madman. But on the road to Damascus, Jesus appeared to Saul in this blinding light and asked him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. It was Saul's wake up call. In that moment, Saul realized that not only had Jesus appeared to him and proven that he was very much alive, but Jesus was, in fact, the Christ who Christians claimed he was. 
Three days later, as Saul was praying and fasting there in Damascus, God sent uh, him a Christian brother named Ananias to lead him in a confession of faith and baptism. We looked at that last week. After Saul was baptized, we read in Acts chapter 9, verse 20, at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, since we have a written account of Paul's life and ministry here in the pages of the Bible, we know that Paul was most likely in his early 30s when he met Jesus on the Damascus Road. And he was martyred in his mid-60s. So he was a Christian for just over 30 years. So I want you to think about this. Paul had just over 30 years to plant dozens of churches on two different continents. He had just over 30 years to write half of the books of the New Testament. He had just over 30 years to become the most influential Christian leader in the 2000 year history of Christianity. That's not much time, is it? So this past week, I imagined uh, what I might say to Paul if I had had the privilege of being there on the banks of that river when he was baptized, knowing that he would have just 30 years left to become the most influential Christian that Christianity would ever see. What would I say to him? And so I imagine what it would be like if I had a time machine. What would it be like? What would I say to Saul? And I pictured myself as Saul was coming out of the water saying something like this. Saul, God has a great plan for your life. You have no idea how big of an impact you're going to carry for the cause of Christ. You have no idea how big of an impact you're going to have in this world for Jesus Christ. And so far, so good on that little pep talk, right? But then I would be tempted to take it a step further and say something like this. Saul, the clock is ticking. You don't have much time here. The clock is ticking. You don't have any time to lose. So start preaching. Start writing scripture. Go, 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 go get them, Saul. And that's one of the many reasons why Jesus has never given me a time machine. <laughs> that is not what he would want said to Saul. My plan for Paul stinks. My plan for Paul wasn't God's plan for Paul. As many of you remember, Paul's greatest impact in this world came when he set out on his missionary journeys. He went on three missionary journeys through Northwest Asia. That's the area over here in modern day Turkey and also in Southeast Europe. Over here, we see Greece, Italy to the left. And so this is where he carried his greatest impact on his three missionary journeys marked by these three different colored lines here. That's where he carried his impact. But something I find very, very interesting. You may not know this. Paul didn't set out on those three missionary journeys for at least 10 years after his conversion to Christianity. He didn't change the world in 30 years. He changed the world in under 20 years. And for those of us who are always busy, always moving, going here, going there, squeezing in one more errand, one more activity, one more class, one more thing in our to do list. The first 10 years of Paul's Christian life seems puzzling to us. It really seems like a bit of a waste. Paul had so much potential. 
And he had so little time. So why didn't God send him to Jerusalem right away? Why didn't God send him to Rome right away or to Ephesus or even to Philippi right away? One of these wonderful cities where he would minister and plant churches and do amazing ministry. Why didn't Jesus send him there right away? Why didn't he? And the simple answer is Saul wasn't ready. So God had something much more important for Saul to do first, more pressing than planting a dozen churches or even writing half the books of the New Testament. And I find myself and my human self saying, how could that be? What could possibly be more important than planning over a dozen churches on two continents? What could possibly be more important than writing half the books of the New Testament? Well, God's ways are higher than my ways and his thoughts are higher than my thoughts. And we'll see today that his methods for shaping world-changing Christians are much different than our methods. Amen? This morning, we're going to take a closer look at Paul's first three years as a Christian. And as we do, we're going to answer some very important questions. Namely, what was Paul doing during his first three years after he got saved? And the follow-up question, why? Let's start with that first question. What was Paul doing during his first three years after he gave his life to Christ. I want us to tackle this first question by looking at the three passages that give us some details about Paul's first 10 years after he became a Christian. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 9, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and Galatians chapter 1. So we'll look at these passages back to back to back. We're going to start in Acts chapter 9, so hopefully you're there already. Acts chapter 9, picking up right about where we left off last week in verse 19. So I'll be reading for you, first of all, Acts 9, verses 19 through 30. This is how it reads. And I'll pick up about halfway through verse 19. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? Hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. After many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took Saul and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Grecian Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Second passage, I want you to flip over to the right. Second Corinthians chapter 11, second Corinthians chapter 11, maybe 40, 50 pages to your right. 
In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, in verses 32 and 33, the last two verses of the chapter, uh, Paul gives us a little summary of what had happened when he was lowered in the basket there in Damascus. Picking up in verse 31, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows I'm not lying. In Damascus, the governor under King Aretas had the city of Damascus guarded in order to arrest me. But I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. And then finally, turn a few pages to your right. The next book over is the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 1, beginning in verse 11. I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not something that men made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not consult any man, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was. But I went immediately into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God, what I am telling you and writing you is no lie. Later, I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. May God bless us as we study his word today. When you first compare Acts chapter 9 with Galatians chapter 1, side by side, there appear to be some discrepancies in here. For instance, in Acts chapter 9 verse 20, Luke tells us that after Saul's baptism, at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. And Luke in the book of Acts doesn't say anything about Saul going to Arabia. But then you look at Galatians 1 verse 17. Paul himself says that after his conversion to Christianity, quote, I immediately went into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. So which is it? And the answer is it was actually both. There's no discrepancy here. You see, in New Testament times, when people spoke of Arabia, they had a different geographic area in mind than you and I tend to when we're thinking of Arabia today. Let me put up a couple maps for you. First of all, here's a map of, of modern day Arabia. This is what we call the Arabian Peninsula. On the west is the Red Sea. On the east is the Persian Gulf. Down below is the Arabian Sea or the Indian Ocean. And so it's the Arabian Peninsula. And so most of that today is taken uh, over by Saudi Arabia. But if you were to look at the geographic area of Arabia in Paul's day, 2000 years ago, it looked much different than this. We put up the second map. This beige area is what we called back then the Nabataean 
kingdom or Nabataean Arabia. Unlike present day Arabia that ends just about here at the top part of the Red Sea, it stretched north past Israel on the west side all the way into modern day Syria. And if you were to be able to see on this map at the very top is a little red dot next to the city, Damascus. Damascus was just barely outside of the geographic perimeter of Nabataean Arabia. So when Paul says here that he went into Arabia right after he gave his life to Christ from the city of Damascus, this was just a quick one or two day jaunt to get into Arabia. It wasn't a very long trip. Now, some Bible scholars speculate that he had gone 450 miles south to Mount Sinai. Further down here, uh, you'll see the little green triangles on the map. Uh, That marks where Mount Sinai was. So he could have traveled all the way down deeper uh, into Arabia, but that's just a guess. He didn't have to travel very far to get to Arabia. And so in all likelihood, there was a little back and forth movement between the Arabian desert and the city of Damascus over this three year period. So what's my point? My point is this. When Paul writes in Galatians 1:17 that he went into the Arabia after he became a Christian, he's not tra- talking about traveling halfway around the world. He's talking about traveling a short distance into a more remote desert region where he would do some things that we'll talk about in a few minutes. Maybe he went deeper into Arabia, but my guess is he was pretty close to Damascus during that entire three-year period. I'm going to put on the screen for you a likely order of events for Paul's first 10 years after he gave his life to Christ. Number one, he he becomes a Christian there in Damascus. Number two, he begins preaching in Damascus, just like we read over the last few weeks there in Acts chapter nine. But then very quickly, he retreats to the Arabian desert for the majority of the next three years. After that, he returns to Damascus, where he begins to be persecuted by the Jewish people living in Damascus. And they come up with this plot to kill him. In fact, the king of Nabataean Arabia is part of that plan to block the exits to the city to have Paul arrested. Well, what do, what do Paul's Christian friends do? It says they lowered him in a basket through a window in the wall of the city so he was able to escape. We read that in 2 Corinthians 11. We read it also in Acts chapter 9. After he escapes Damascus, number five, he goes to Jerusalem where he spent 15 days with the apostle Peter and James. We read that in Galatians chapter 1. And then finally, number six, after leaving Jerusalem after that 15 days, Saul spends at least seven years in Syria, Cilicia, and back in his hometown where he was born, his town of Tarsus. And so that's that 10 year period of of Paul in a nutshell. So what was he doing during the first three of those 10 years? There's no doubt that he spent some time preaching the word of God, but it seems clear that more than anything else, Saul was living alone in the desert. There with the sagebrush and and there with the snakes and the hyenas, he's out there in a very remote area by himself. In all likelihood, Paul had minimal interaction with people during the bulk of that three year period after he gave his life to Christ, which leads us to the second question. Why? Why was he in Arabia? 
What was he doing out in the desert with the jackals and the sagebrush? It's a valid question, isn't it? Seems like to me, with my modern uh, Western civilization mindset, it seems like such a waste of time. Why was he out in the desert when he had the clock a ticking only 30 years to impact this world for Jesus Christ? Well, Paul answers this question. Why for us better than about anyone in Galatians chapter one, verses 11 and 12. Paul writes, I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. Over the past two weeks, uh, we've taken a look at that conversion of Saul there on the Damascus Road. And then as that conversion was completed uh, with Ananias' help there in Damascus. And we've seen this, this amazing account of Jesus speaking through revelation directly to Saul. But that was only the first of Jesus's revelations to, to Paul. Uh, when Jesus met Saul on the road to Damascus, he just introduced himself and gave Saul a brief snapshot of his mission that God had for him. But Jesus had so much more to teach him. In Acts chapter one, do you remember uh, when the early church is gathered there before the day of Pentecost? It had just been a few weeks earlier that uh, Jesus had died on the cross and Judas Iscariot had betrayed him. And then he felt so guilty. He went out and hung himself. And so there in the in the upper room there in Jerusalem before the day of Pentecost, Peter gathers the disciples together and says, we're missing an apostle. Jesus appointed twelve Judas went off and hung himself. We need to choose a new 12th apostle. And there he says in Acts chapter one, verses 21 and 22, what a few of the qualifications had to be for someone to be selected to be an apostle. He writes, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time. The Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of Jesus's resurrection. So don't miss this. Not just any Christian man could become an apostle. It had to be someone who had seen Jesus with his own two eyes and had heard Jesus with his own two year, two ears and someone who had experienced Jesus's ministry from start to finish. And do you remember how long Jesus's ministry lasted. It lasted for just over three years. Now, is it a coincidence that Saul was out there in the Arabian desert for about that same amount of time? Three years. I don't think so. I don't believe in coincidences in God's kingdom. You see, what was he doing out there in the desert by himself? Well, Jesus was meeting with Saul and qualifying him. And equipping him and preparing him to be an apostle. He was able to allow Saul to ask him questions. And Saul was able to listen intently to Jesus' answers. He was able, Saul was, to receive from Jesus the greatest revelation in the history of the world. The resurrection, excuse me, the revelation of the gospel of salvation through Jesus Christ. Years later, Paul would write these words in Romans chapter one, verses 16 and 17. I am not ashamed of the gospel 
because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. That is truly profound. Where did Paul learn that profound theology? And the answer is he learned it from Jesus Christ directly. How about what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 6? For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time. That's incredible. Where did Paul learn the highest priorities in the Gospel? He learned them directly from Jesus Christ. How about Ephesians 2 verses 8 through 10? Paul writes, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. I love these verses. How was Paul able to articulate These gospel truths so clearly because he spent the better part of three years one on one with Jesus Christ himself, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You and I tend to look at Paul's three years in the desert as a waste of precious time. But the truth is, it was the best use of Paul's time. Paul could not have planted dozens of churches on two continents had he not first spent so much one-on-one time with Jesus. Paul could not have written Romans, 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, or his other ten books of the Bible had he not first spent so much time at Jesus' feet. Paul could not have become the most influential Christian leader of the past 2,000 years had he not spent so much time doing the most strategic thing that any Christian could ever do do who hopes to make a lasting impact in this world, and that is to get alone with Jesus and let him prepare you for battle. Let him prepare you for battle. I want you to consider how the most influential world changers in the Bible spent one on one time with God before they impacted the world for God. Think about Moses. He spent 40 years herding sheep out in the, uh, the Midianite desert. He was out there herding sheep for 40 years before God spoke to him through the burning bush and sent him back to Egypt to lead over a million Israelites out of captivity. And Moses, by the way, went on to write the first five books of the Old Testament, what's called the Torah, the target for the Jewish people's scripture. David was the greatest king in Israel's history. But it took him a long time to get there. He spent his teenage years standing in the fields of Bethlehem, herding his dad's sheep. Most of his 20s were spent on the lamb, running through the desert from Saul who wanted to kill him. He was running through desert places. He was hiding in caves. And as you look at the book of Psalms, of those 150 Psalms in our Bible, David wrote about 75 of them. And I believe most of those were written during those years. He was either out in the sheep fields as a teenager or running from Saul during his 20s. God was preparing him in the desert with that one-on-one time that God spent with him. 
At the start of his ministry, the prophet Elijah spent lots of one-on-one time with God near the Cherith Brook, and his only other companions were ravens. Joseph spent lots of one-on-one time with God in an Egyptian prison where he sat for several years. Long before John the Baptist started baptizing people in the Jordan River, he was spending lots of one-on-one time with God in the desert. In fact, he lived in the desert. Each of these great servants of God, along with so many others, spent quality one-on-one time with God. That was God's world-changing boot camp that they went through, preparing them to be the greatest impactors this world has ever seen. You see, more times than not, eternal impact isn't attained by speeding up, but by slowing down. Not by packing more into our schedules, but by packing less. Not by talking to people more, but by listening to Jesus more. If we desire to reach further for Jesus, we must first go deeper with Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, when we do that, when we slow down, when we streamline our hectic schedules and spend one-on-one time with Jesus, listening to Him and going deeper with Him, I guarantee you, you will be in a much better place to make a greater impact. I want to share with you in closing three important life lessons that we can pull from this study we've had today. Let me start with number one. Life lesson number one. If you want to be a deep Christian, you must be a churched Christian. Some of you might ask, well, where do you get that from this study today? You didn't say anything about church. Well, I want you to think about what we read in Acts chapter 9. In Acts 9, we discover that after Saul's conversion, he connected with the church in Damascus immediately. And that was his M.O. for the next 30 years. When he would go into a town that was a town that had people in it, not in the middle of the desert when he was by himself. But when he would go into a town, what would he do? He would immediately connect with Christians in that town. He would connect with them. And if there weren't Christians in that town, he would start a church. So he would either connect with a church that was already in existence or plan a new church. Either way, he connected as quickly as possible with a church. Over the past two years, millions of American Christians have voluntarily isolated themselves from church, voluntarily isolated themselves from their church family. And without a doubt, it's taken a toll on their spiritual health. Truth be told, all of us need more than what an online service can provide. We need fellowship with other Christians. We need to worship and study God's word and take communion and serve alongside other Christians. I'm so glad glad that our, our church can offer these online services. They're a blessing to so many people. But as good as they are, I'll be the first to admit they aren't nearly as good as an in person service alongside other brothers and sisters in Christ. So if you are physically able to get back to church, I urge you. To get back to church in person. By the way, don't miss the significance of what Ananias and Barnabas did here in Acts chapter 9. When Paul gave himself to Christ, he was called Saul, of course, at the time. When Saul gave his life to Christ, Ananias immediately introduced him to other Christians. He introduced him to the church. 
And then three years later, as Saul goes to Jerusalem, at that point, it was his first time back after having left with those letters uh, from the chief leaders in the Sanhedrin, giving him permission to arrest Christians. Three years later, he comes back. He doesn't have those letters anymore. He starts preaching about Jesus. And Barnabas takes Saul, who was looking kind of fishy to the other Christians in town. And Barnabas introduced him to Peter and the other Christians. And so don't miss what Ananias and Barnabas did. They introduced Christian Saul to the Christian church. It's a wonderful thing when you and I do the same thing. When we take a Christian who is isolated from other Christians and we introduce him to the church family and allow him or her to acclimate and be assimilated into that church family. It's one of the greatest gifts we could ever give another Christian is the gift of a church family to fellowship with, to serve with, to love and honor Christ with. Life lesson number two. Don't wait for a cataclysmic event or life-threatening illness to slow you down and shut you up. Slow down. Talk less. And listen for the still, quiet voice of God. As we discovered two weeks ago when Jesus spoke to Saul on the Damascus road, that wasn't the first time Jesus had tried to get Saul's attention. He tried to get his attention many other times, but Saul wasn't listening. He's running around like a chicken with his head cut off, chasing after Christians in their homes and chasing after Christians in synagogues. And he was busy, 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 too busy to hear the quiet, still voice of God. Don't make God knock you flat on your back to get your attention. Slow down. Stop talking. Turn off the noise around you. You don't always have to have the radio playing when you're in your car. You don't always have to have the TV on when you're at home. Stop talking. Turn off the noise around you and listen. Listen for the still, quiet voice of God. Finally, life lesson number three. If you want to be a deep Christian... You must prioritize one-on-one time with Jesus. If you really want to do great things for Jesus, you must first spend quality time with Jesus. Lesson number two is all about slowing down and listening to God's voice in the midst of your daily routine. But lesson number three here is about doing what it takes to change your routine. Both are critical. In your routine, make sure that you slow down and quiet the noise to listen to the voice of God. But this third lesson reminds us our routine needs some shaking up. It needs some changing. When our lives get too busy, something has to give. Something has to be cut from our schedules. And more times than not, what is that something we cut from our schedules? More times than not, it's our time with God. Because we've got this crazy hustle and bustle American mindset that if I've got too much to do, sitting around and praying or reading the Bible has to go. I am too busy to spend time with God. And the fact is, the exact opposite is true. You're too busy not to spend time with God. So often we 86 our time in the word and we 86 our time in prayer. We we scrap our personal devotion time with God, our our quiet time with God, our prayer time with God, whatever you call it. We put it on the back burner when we start getting busy. 
And if you keep it up, you're going to get to the end of your life having done many good things that carried very little impact in this world for Jesus Christ. I've said it many times before, and I plan on keep saying it. You know what? What is good is the enemy of what is best. So often we go and do many good things, but we're doing these good things that fill the time, taking time away from the best things. And the very best thing you could ever do with your time is to give it to God, to spend quality time in prayer and in Bible study and in meditation with God. What is best in any Christian's life is our time spent with Jesus Christ in church and one on one. Just you and him, just you and him. There's no better way to spend your time. Lord Jesus. We want to come to you and repent. We, we confess, oh God, that we've put you on the back burner. And even our mindset at times, Lord, is just 180 degrees from where you want it. We, we have this crazy idea that I'm too busy to go to church. I, I'm too busy to read my Bible. I, I'm too busy to pray. I'm too busy to shut off the noise or cut some things out of my schedule so I can spend more time with you. I'm, I'm too busy to carve out a day on a weekend to just get off in the mountains or sitting on a fishing boat or whatever it takes to get away from the noise and, and the cell phones ringing and, and the TV blaring and our neighbor blasting the rap. Just whatever it is, Lord, whatever it takes to get away and just spend one-on-one -on -one time with you. Forgive us, Lord, for that faulty mindset. And I pray, O oh God, that we would more than ever before prioritize meeting with you with other Christians. May we get back to making church a priority. Lord, we've gotten into this habit of making church as simple as possible. A quick hour on my cell phone and I'm done for the week. God, that's not church. Lord, I thank you that we're able to have these services for those who are shut-ins and can't physically make it to a church. But Lord, for those of us who physically can, Lord, we need more. We need more. So Lord, I pray that we wouldn't give you the simplest form of worship. The quickest form of worship. The quickest form of prayer or Bible study. But Lord, that we would give you more time. Devoted time to you. With other Christians. And one-on-one. -on -one, just me and you. Lord, I pray that you would do your work in us as we do what you did in Saul, preparing him for the great ministry ahead. May we never forget, Lord, that we will carry the greatest impact tomorrow if we spend the time we need to with you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I am very, very thankful for our team at Impact that allows us to put these online services out each week. They're critical for our shut-ins. They're critical for people that might never step foot inside our church building. But I know that others of us have the ability. We live locally, and we're physically able to be in a church service in person. I want to encourage you as we're making our way into this Easter season, what better time is there to get back to church than this week? Get back and join the fellowship. 
Get back and join us as soon as you can. I guarantee you these online services are good, but in-person services, they're even better. God bless you. As you serve our Lord this week, please reach out to us. If there's anything we can do for you this week, phone number at the church office, 760-246-4100. You can email us at info at greaterimpact.cc. If you're ready to put Jesus Christ in the driver's seat of your life, or if you just need prayer or you have another need, please reach out to us. We want to help if we can. God bless you as you love and serve and trust our Lord Jesus Christ this week. Make a greater impact for the glory of God.